again. Um, before we start, because I'm going to include this in my prayers, but just to have a moment with you um, before we do pray, I want to just say thank you to all of you um, um, deeply, deeply for your prayers, for the concerns you expressed in your notes to us. Um, they meant a lot. Um, um, both of us are we're, um, so grateful um, to hear from you and, and to know you were praying. I'm gonna I'm gonna mute you all, so you know that if you want to come back on, just take the mute off. Um, anyway, I'm deeply grateful, more than I can say, for your prayers. Um, I mean, I don't know what else to say. It's a humbling experience. It's um, it, um, I was weakened beyond belief. I mean, there just was very little I could do. So to have your help and to know that I was a part of your lives was not a small thing for me or, or Suzanne. So both of us offer deep thanks, okay? Any prayer requests tonight? A lot is going on. I want to pray for... Heather, your husband's name is Chris. Yeah. Um, any prayer yeah. requests? I've got... I'll, I'm going to include Chris for sure, but... And do you have? Yes. I would like to pray for my dear friend, Brenda, who has been diagnosed with ALS. And for, for God's help in helping she and her husband to, uh, to comfort them in this road that they must travel. Paralysis. What is, sorry, Anne, what is ALS? Lou Gehrig's disease. Oh, yeah, my goodness. How old? 69. 69, yeah. By the way, Anne, you look beautiful. And I, I'm, oh, thank you. I'm sort of reluctant to say that because it's as if you'd not been beautiful, but you are. But you look dressed up and I, something looks, I mean, you look like you've been someplace or going someplace special because, anyway, you look really lovely. Um, thank you. Any other prayers? How about Connie's daughter? I, I will. And just for me, from uh, just in Thanksgiving for the healing of you, Doctor Bob. Yep. Really, we were so worried because we yeah, and I knew I knew Suzanne just had so much to do, but it was such a long period before we knew that you were going to be okay. It was uh, anyway. We prayed even more so, and also in Thanksgiving for healing of my daughter and I from COVID. Yeah, I'm, I'm eight, fifteen or sixteen right now, and I um, I am so thankful to Doctor Bob. To Dr. Bob, that helped. Um, Connie, before we, I mean, just so you, Connie, we exchanged notes a couple of weeks ago, and she said that she and her daughter had been tested positive. But I know that you were worried. I think if I, I think I finally got it straightened out, Connie. I'm sorry for the confusion. You were concerned about Samantha because she was pregnant. Are, is well, she yeah, okay? Horror stories of women, you know, having COVID, catching it, and then bad things happening. So. Just to keep her in your prayers would be awesome. But she's, she's been tested. Okay. She's okay. Oh, oh, she's fine. She's okay. great. Okay. Just yeah, good. Good. To let it continue that way. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah. Dr. Bob? Yes. Please, um, we'd like to ask everyone to keep our daughter Denise in your prayers. She uh, she was supposed to have a bone marrow transplant on September 15th, but she wasn't quite ready. Her blood counts, uh, was, nothing was uh, up to par to be able to receive a bone marrow transplant. So that will be another month of setback. So we are looking middle of October. Glad to give them, Kay. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, tell us about your granddaughter. Uh, wasn't she thinking that you might need to take care of her child? Yes, we, we were taking care of her uh, during the summer vacation when she was out of school. Everybody had the jobs and the schools. Uh, nobody was able to take care of her. And so she was uh, home alone. So our daughter, who is 48 years old, she sent her 10-year-old daughter to us to take care. 
So we were taking care of her, but now school started, so we sent her back so she can go go to school. She's with her mother now? No, because her mother is still in the hospital. Who's she with? Her father and brother and sister. Okay. She goes to school, so, you know, like, uh, what, from 8 a.m. to like 3 p.m.? Right. Uh, school is babysitting her. <laughs> well, instead of us. teaching, yeah. <laughs> and uh, when she comes home, uh, her oldest daughter, 25-year-old sister, is uh, home. She works early shift as a nurse. Boy. So Boy. the family is just juggling. Yeah, I'm just amazed at when we think about, you know, the sorts of situations we get into because of families. I mean, all the complications, yeah. it's just, yeah. Right. <laughs> okay, let's, let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, uh, so much going on here. Um, first of all, um, a large, deeply felt thanks, Lord, for the healing here. I'm grateful for Connie's concern and her wanting to give thanksgiving. Um, um, it takes me back to Karen and Bob and Karen's prayer before we... Strange, the timing of these things. She made an extraordinary prayer and then this happened. Um, but Suzanne and I are grateful to be here and um, to see the recovery go as well as it is. We're doing well. I'm doing well. Um, she is a rock. Um, so thank you, Lord, for um, your help and for all the help that comes through the prayers of a community like this. Um, um, we have a, um, several things to ask, Lord. Pretty seriously, um, Heather's husband Chris has got Parkinson's, and um, that's tough news. Um, he's going to have a real trial ahead of him in the next handful of years. Um, my prayer is that he stay strong in his commitment to do everything he can. What else can we do? I mean, there are you know some things we can't overcome, but. Those things are beyond us. What we can do are those things we can do to help us to not give up, to work hard, <laughs> particularly when we're, when we're facing the weaknesses that we carry, when we're struggling, you know, to get beyond them. So be with him, um, Holy Spirit. Breathe into him a strength. Give him courage, a greater humility. Um, Quiet Heather's heart to God. I know in some ways it's harder for people who watch on because there's nothing they can do. Um, not an easy thing. So be with her, strengthen her and her faith, her trust. Whatever happens, we know. I mean, it's one of the things we took away from with Boethius. It's certainly it. It's there's no other group that I know of in the world um, that carries the truths that we took from Boethius. God is all, he's a good God. There's no evil. Evil is a privation. He's always at work bringing good out of evil. He's always doing something. Do we see it? Do we feel it? Do we live it? So strengthen all of us in that trust, knowing that even if we don't see it, if our eyes are partly closed, um, ask Christ to open them, to strengthen us in our faith, to know, believe, act, knowing, that you are always doing something to bring good out of the difficulties we face, the stupid things we do, the things that happen to us that we don't wish on ourselves that come unbidden and they just happen. So be with Heather and Chris. The same thing with um, uh, Brent is, and it's, it's Brenda, yeah. Be with Brenda and her family. Um, she has an ordeal ahead of her too. Um, strengthen her. Um, let her heart know that um, that you're there. That these things happen. And um, I want to say this now for everybody because I believe it so strongly. 
We live in a world that encourages us to believe that the end of everything in this commercial republic, we're in Venice now, Shakespeare's Venice, that the end of everything is comfort and security and control. But we know that's not true. We get sick. The older we get, the more susceptible, the more vulnerable we are. The, the, the world does everything it can to act like it can take suffering away. Um, help all of us to believe that trials can be a grace if we enter into them. All the saints died. They, they gave themselves to ordeals. Um, strengthen us because so often our faith is weak. To, to know that when we face trials, they're to help make us better. Um, that's hard, particularly when we don't get much help from the world because of the way the world looks at things. So I ask first a greater strength of faith, a greater faith in all of us when we're facing ordeals to be hopeful, to trust in you, to know that you're doing something, whatever happens. Let that be so. Let it be real, a live thing for each one of us. So watch over Brenda, be with her, help her in her trial, and be with those people that love her, and because she carries her in her heart. Um, she and Connie. <laughs> um, God. Um, a thanksgiving for Connie that she and her daughter um, came through that COVID episode and are fine and we ask a protection on Samantha and her child. Surround them with your protection, keep them safe. I ask for a, um, a greater spirit of prudence and care for all of us because we have this second wave, this other wave of COVID. Help us not to be cavalier, not to be afraid, not to be coward, not to hide, um, but to be careful in what we do. Denise, um, this is your, um, Kay, this, and David, this is your daughter. daughter yeah. Um, I'm sorry, tell me again what's, what's with Denise, your, um, Kay, help me here, can you? What, your prayers are for Denise, for what? Bone marrow oh, the bone marrow transplant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep her, um, keep her patient. Protect her while she waits. Protect her while she waits, and um, help this proceeding expedite it. Help it move forward to help her so that she can more quickly have this um, operation and go on. Hopefully improved. These are our prayers. They're burdens on our hearts and lifted hearts in thanksgiving for the genuine joy we feel for the help we receive. We offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, what I'd like to do, you guys, I'm, I'm just going to give you a couple of thoughts on Hamlet and bid you all a good night. Um, I, I want to take this easy. What I, um, a couple of things I wanted. Um, what I'd like to do, I didn't know how this was going to go tonight. I, I, I think as you can tell, I'm, um, I'm, I'm fairly comfortable talking. It's when I make physical exertions that I have to struggle to get my breath. So. But I wanted to be careful. I wanted to see how this went. So what I'll do is get a hold of you next week, middle of the week. Let's tentatively plan to meet next week and make it a shortened class again. I'll just shorten them, make it an hour, hour 15 minutes, something like that. And just move slowly ahead. I, I think I'll be okay. And you all know me well enough right now to know that I don't keep the times very well. That if it's an hour and a half class, it's usually going to go to an hour and a half or two. Or I, I'm going to struggle to to be better about that. Um, anyway, I'm going to I'm going to approach the next couple of classes carefully and with a sense of limit. So let's plan to go ahead, but with a shortened class. I wanted to see how this goes. I, I just do not want to press this right now. Um, so. 
And somebody, I'll, I'll send out a note, somebody asked about the additions. Any addition will do because the, the acts and scenes and line numbers are pretty much the same. My recommendation is that you get um, the, uh, oh God, it's the Signet and the Folgers um, additions. The Folgers, they're, they're made for a popular audience. Other editions are made by scholars for scholars. You don't want an edition like that, on, honestly. You, to get into that scholarly world is to get into an, just an, I'm not kidding, an insane world. Stay away from it. The Signet is a good, it's short. Um, I would encourage you to get the Folgers because in the Folgers, um, they have on the facing page of each page of the text, they have a, uh-oh. Wow. I just lost, um, are you all with me? The screen yes. blank for a second. Yes. On the Folgers, in the Folgers edition, on the facing page of each page of the text, they have a, um, a paraphrase of the lines. So wherever there are difficulties in a line, a text, you've got a simple explanation of it. And um, it's, so it's not full of textual notes, it's just following the text. So if you're having trouble, you can read it quickly and go on. So it shouldn't interfere with your reading because you know the principle that I've encouraged is keep reading. Do not get caught up in notes because notes, if, if you move forward, the text will help you understand it. It just, you, you have more to go on. Um, so I would encourage you to get the Folgers. It's very inexpensive. It's a paperback. It's small. It's portable. It's convenient. It's, it's a good text. So. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, here are just some opening thoughts on um, Hamlet. A couple of, and, and by the way, just so you know this, I think you know some of my sins by now. You all have known me well enough. Know, you know that I tend to overdo things, that I, that I put notes together and they're overdone, and I do a lot of prep for classes. I'm going to do practically no preparations at all for the next few weeks. I'm going to go on what I know. I wouldn't do that. I would not do that because these works mean too much to me unless I knew the works really well. I know Hamlet really well. So Lear and Hamlet, Pericles, Winter's Tale, and I've done them recently in, in Francis. So I'm fine. I'm not going to be sending you notes I'm going to be doing as little as I can and taking care of things online. That's the first thing. The second thing is I would like to ask all of you to do something. I have a request to make of you. I would like all of you to come with questions. I've not put homework on you guys, but I am now. It's my way of asking you to help me out um, because um, I'm not going to be doing extensive stuff. But I think it would also be good. It's a good time. You guys have been doing this long enough now. So I'd like each one of you to come with a couple of questions on the play. I'd like to hear what they are. It would be good for me to have a chance to respond and for everybody to hear that exchange. I, I think it would help everybody. So I'm not going to do any preps, but I'm okay. I, trust me. On, I, I know Hamlet really well. And I'd like you to um, come with some questions because I think it would help, okay? Um, why did I lose? What happened here? Um, okay, with that said, um, a couple of, I've got a couple of major lines of thought that I want to pass on to you guys. One is, remember that this is really, Hamlet is looked at as one of the most important plays of the modern world. There are psychologists, probably the greater number of psychologists in the field of psychology, turn to Hamlet as an example of something peculiarly modern. That's how important it is. I'm not exaggerating that. I'm not exaggerating that at all. It's looked at as the quintessential modern play. I think that's because, I think it's because, partly because of reasons the critics don't understand. I'm going to try to make that clear in a minute, but also because Hamlet's so intellectual. He, if, if you compare him to all of other Shakespeare's other heroes, nobody 
reasons as much as he does. That's a peculiarly modern quality. So of all the plays that Shakespeare's written, some people take this as the, the quintessential modern play. Okay. Um, one of the things I want everybody to just hold on to, to remember, it's something you know that I've been hitting you over the head with since we began. Um, remember that literature offers us a different kind of knowledge. It's a different way of knowing. It's not the way of physics or biology or history or philosophy. Literature offers us knowledge as experience. It's not a conceptual knowledge. It doesn't give us ideas or statements. It returns us to the world to experience things the way we do daily in our own lives. No, none of us step outside of our, you know, if you're having a quarrel with your husband or eating a good dinner, you don't stop and analyze it. You enjoy, or you're in the argument, or you're enjoying the dinner. Literature returns us to that world and we experience as experience. So we participate in the world as we know it in our daily lives. It returns us to the world. So the knowledge that it offers us is knowledge as experience. Um, that's important. It's a particular, I mean, you know that it's, for me, it's been important all along in the Iliad, the Odyssey, any, any work we've read. It's particularly true of Hamlet if Hamlet is a quintessential modern play because it takes us into our own lives. So in my mind, it's a little bit like Othello and Merchant of Venice. Shakespeare's returning us to our world because remember, Merchant of Venice and Othello are the Venetian world. It's the, it's the commercial republic. It's our world today. America is our world. By the way, I just got a paper published on Othello. I think I'm going to send it to you guys um, on Othello. I think you'd enjoy it because it locates Othello in America. And you'd see that even though Shakespeare wrote Othello, what, 400 years ago, you'd see how contemporary it is. I, I'll send it to you guys. I think you I might enjoy it. So we're reading Hamlet because he presents us, and I mean all of the modern world, but I mean more particularly Catholics. He presents us with a problem that's particularly acute. It's a sharp problem because it deals more immediately with a question of faith than any other play Shakespeare wrote. And I'll make that clear in a minute. So it's extremely important for us. Okay. Now two things. I want to set Shakespeare's view of the world next to ours. Shakespeare lived at a time, he, 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 was, he was an extraordinarily perceptive, brilliant man. He saw the implications of things. That's why he could write two plays on Venice, the commercial regime, which is us. It's the modern commercial regime. He wrote the other play that we read, All's Well That Ends Well. Remember about Helena going to Italy and coming back and transforming that French aristocracy. So he knew about the influence of the thinking coming out of Italy. The, what we call the Renaissance. It took several years to get from Italy to England. It's taking place in the 14th century in England. It takes place in, or I mean in Italy. The Renaissance takes place in England in about the 1600s. It takes two centuries for those changes to work themselves out. At Shakespeare's time, he understood that something radical was happening. He knew that science um, had unsettled everything because the, the science, the discoveries that Copernicus made um, questioned everything about the sciences that were believed in in that time, the Ptolemaic universe. The whole Ptolemaic scheme, remember, put the earth at the center of the world and, or the universe with all the planets revolving around it. Copernicus said, that, no, that's all wrong, um, that the universe is configured differently and the earth is actually one of the planets circling. So it was a time of skepticism, of doubt. It was a time of questioning authorities. The, the authority of the church was questioned because the authority of the church rested partly on Copernicus, or I mean Ptolemy, Ptolemy. He saw the implications of that. That's why in All's Well That Ends Well, remember, who was a um, 
Parolis, no, it was um, Lefeu, who said, the age of miracles is past. Nobody believed Helena could cure the king. I'm going back to all's well that ends well. I hope everybody's with me. Remember, all the people said, there's no way she can cure the king. The age of miracles were, were past. I remember reading that line to you. That was a stunning line because it's representative of the thinking of lots of people during the Renaissance. The sacred Christian Middle Ages are gone. This is a rationalistic age in which we look at things differently. Um, so Shakespeare lived on that threshold. Now, I'm, let me fast forward for a moment and set it against Shakespeare. In our world, in our world, we believe that man came from nowhere. We don't know where he came from forces we don't understand if we believe in evolution. Um, we don't know what his beginnings were. They're chance, accidental. And we don't know where he's going. That's the dominant theory of man. Man is a product of forces over which he has no control. He's not responsible for himself anymore. He can do whatever he wants. He's just a bundle. He's a bundle of desires. That's Darwin. That's Freud. Freud believed we had all these perverse desires in us. And all of them believed we had no free will. That we were a product of these determinist forces. That's science. Or, or that's the popular view, and, and it's a, the view of a lot of scientists. Um, Shakespeare believed that um, man was made in the image of God. That he came from God, his ultimate end was God. He believed in supernatural things. The modern scientific mind does not. It does not believe in the supernatural. It believes it can understand everything, you know, if we can only make these discoveries and keep making them. We'll get a hold of everything. Um, Shakespeare believed that we came from somebody and we're going to somebody and what we do here matters. If you go back to Oedipus, we read Oedipus together, you know that Oedipus, when he grew up, he had no choice in what he did. It was fated that he would kill his father and sleep with his mother. That's why he's such an important figure for Freud, because those, those things are determined. We can't do anything about them. They're in us. Sophocles, Oedipus, had no choice. Shakespeare's a Christian. Three of his tragic heroes are Christians. Othello, Hamlet, and Macbeth are all Christian. They've all been baptized. Their tragic ends come as a, revolt, as a result of choices they make. They don't live in a fated world. Now this is crucial to where I'm going. All of those heroes had choices to make. But Shakespeare, as a Christian, believed no matter what choices men make, God is always at work helping to bring good out of evil. So even with tragedies, the tragic endings, there's some good. The tragic heroes learn to see their mistakes. They repent. They see. They change. It's a different kind of tragedy. It's not the same tragedy that the pagans would have written. That Sophocles or Aeschylus. Let me stop for a moment. Is that clear? Does everybody understand where I'm going, what I'm saying? Two things happen at Shakespeare's time. One is the scientific revolution, the Copernican revolution. The other is the Reformation. Martin Luther tacked his 95 theses on the walls of Wittenberg University. It, it had been a Catholic university. The principal, one of the principal doctrines that he introduced in the Reformation was the belief that we did not need a sacramental order of priests, that the most important thing for a Christian was a personal relationship he had with God. So he elevated the notion of a private revelation, that that personal relationship with God meant more than anything else than the church could do. That was central to Luther's thinking. Luther was at Wittenberg. Okay, here's the first quiz for you guys tonight. What university did Hamlet go to? Wow. Okay, you're all flunked. I can't believe you guys. What university did Hamlet go? He just returned from what university? 
to, to honor his father's death uh, and his uncle's marriage. He went to Wittenberg. Wittenberg. Is that an accident in Shakespeare's world? Here, here's the interesting thing. There was an actual historical hamlet. The actual historical hamlet lived around the 9th, 10th or 11th centuries. I can't remember when. Wittenberg was founded, I think, in 1503. Get this. Hamlet lived centuries earlier. Wittenberg was founded in 1503. Luther hung up his theses, his theses in 1509, 1513. I can't remember. In there. Shakespeare's writing Hamlet, 16th century, 1600, roughly around the 1600. That's 100 years later. So is Shakespeare just a bad reader of history? Is he getting his facts wrong? No, he does, he's not a historian. He's not concerned with literal historical facts. He's concerned with something much larger. Hamlet's just come back from Wittenberg. What does he experience when he gets home? He experiences... Let us Here, give it to me. He experiences a private revelation. Her, he's called to the ramparts because suspicious things have been going on and he goes to the ramparts and the, the ghost of his father greets him and tells him he has to avenge his death, that his brother killed him. Claudius's brother is now the king. Nobody's privy to that revelation, only Hamlet. Is everybody following? Now what do you do when you have a private revelation? How does it orient you to the world? Who can you tell? Who will you believe? And if you go, if you act on it, if he, if he kills his uncle, and he says, the ghost of my father told me to do it. What would be the response of people hearing that? They'd think he's mad. So a private revelation suddenly disorients a man. He has no way of relating to the natural world, the political world anymore. So everybody following. So Shakespeare is dealing immediately with one of the most important doctrines coming out of the Reformation. If you've read Hamlet, you know how unsettled it is. I mean, he imagine what that would do to anybody. Avenge my death. It's a serious, I mean, he, he's left with a serious problem. It's a matter of justice. His father was killed brutally, violently, treacherously. He's saying avenge it because who, nobody knows about it. It was done secretly. And the man who did it is now king. So Shakespeare's taking a matter of a, a, a crucial, a central doctrine of the Reformation, and he's putting it at its pitch condition. To act on it, Hamlet has to go against, he has to go against the king. So a couple of things. Shakespeare's on the threshold of a scientific worldview. It's going to change the way we look at everything. He's also writing at a time when the Reformation is already underway and the Protestant world and the Catholic world is affected by it. We live in the South. We live in a modern Protestant America. It's a serious question of how much Catholics are actually affected by Protestant thinking. Um, so those are two things, the scientific worldview, the Reformation. The third, politically, Politically, in Shakespeare's time, there were two, basically two kinds of regimes, and you know them now. One of them was monarchies. Countries lived under kings, right? In All's Well That Ends Well, remember, Helena cured the king. He was the king of France. It was an aristocracy. Shakespeare lived under a king. And you know the tyrannies that, I mean, the totalitarian view that, that, that in Shakespeare's time, you couldn't practice a Catholic faith without being persecuted. So Shakespeare grew up under totalitarian conditions, under a monarchy. So one regime was monarchies, under kings. The second was democracies. Remember, they were coming out of Italy. Remember when we read Dante? Out of all these struggles between church and state, whether people were aligning, identifying with the emperor or the church, emerged these new republics. 
called the Commercial Republic. That was Dante's Florence. We studied that with Dante's Commedia. Is everybody with me? The commercial regime comes into existence, a new kind of regime. It didn't owe its allegiance to the church. It didn't owe its allegiance to the emperor. It was based on the belief that human beings were these marvelous creatures that they would do better if they had the freedom to be resourceful themselves, to not have somebody tell them what to do. So there was this extraordinary love of freedom. And you know that it was great enough that they killed each other over it. I mean, the people identifying with the popes went to war with the people identifying with the emperors and the Dante's whites, the, the group, the whites, um, went to war um, because they believed that this freedom was an extraordinary gift to man. That if he was left to himself, he had the ability to make a good life for himself, that he was responsible for himself. So all sorts of new ideas were coming out of Italy, Rome. That was the center of the Renaissance. Took 200 years to get to England, but it's there. Shakespeare's aware of him. In All's Well That End Well, he's aware of that. Remember, um, um, Helena goes to Italy, and she's the one who comes back and marries Bertram, who breaks that rigid, stratified culture in France. Okay? So Shakespeare knows that there are two regimes. Okay? Um, in modern America, we live in a democracy, and here's one of the contrasts. Shakespeare believed that man was made in the image of God, that he was good, capable, resourceful, he could make a good life for himself. We believe that man's a product of forces over which he has no control. We don't know where he came from, we don't know where he's going. In the modern democracy, the fundamental defining principle of the modern democracy is freedom of choice. That's what, in the modern mind, makes a democracy democratic. Freedom of choice. That's a fundamental principle. And it's, it's made absolute. So if a girl's 12 years old and pregnant, the courts are going to support her freedom to get an abortion whether she has the consent of her parents or not. If a woman wants an abortion, the um, Supreme Court passed a law that almost, I mean, implicitly legalizes sodomy. Homosexual marriages, abortion, doesn't matter. That what matters is that each person has the freedom to do what he wants and nobody should. It's on the basis of that that state is given the power that it has. If anybody argues with that, that person is looked at as a pariah, a bigot, somebody narrow-minded who belongs to another world. Shakespeare believed that um, freedom of choice wasn't absolute, that, um, that, that some choices we make can hurt us, that we have a moral grounding, a spiritual grounding, um, so that the choices we make are based on our understanding of good or evil or what's appropriate or inappropriate or lawful or um, pleasing to God or displeasing to Him. So we're looking at two very different worlds. Hamlet is written on the verge of that one world. I mean, on, on, those, on, a, on an old world passing away and a new world just beginning. That's why Hamlet is such an important play. Now here's the question I'm going to leave you guys with. Um, you'll read, I mean I, I, I don't, I hope you guys read this play, it really is, a, it's just an extraordinary play. The play opens with Hamlet returning from Wittenberg. He's a student, he's Catholic. He's at Wittenberg. That's <laughs> where Luther hung up his theses. He comes home to his to the marriage between his mother and his uncle. His father has just died and his mother is already marrying um, his father's brother, Claudius the King. When we meet next time, I'm going to read that some of the lines of that opening speech that Claudius makes. It's his State of the Union because the State of the Union is one of the most perfect examples of Machiavellian politics that I have ever read. Be sure you read that and ask yourself, what do we learn about Claudius as a king? 
What kind of a king is he? What's he doing? He's just married his dead brother's wife. He killed the king. He married his wife. He solidifies his hold on the throne. He's married the queen. Hamlet's upset because his mother's just married. In his mind, she's done a dishonor to his father. So for a number of reasons, he's wounded. I mean, deeply hurt. His father's dead. His mother's marrying. Add to that now, he's told that something strange is going on. He goes to the ramparts and he meets with the ghost of his father. And the ghost says to him, my brother killed me. The poison in my ear when I was sleeping, it was treacherous. He killed me. Avenge my death. That's a private revelation. Here, here's, I want to emphasize this. Modern psychologists love this play because Hamlet's so thoughtful. But they treat it as if the ghost isn't there because to treat the ghost means there's supernatural things that they have to introduce into their thinking. They're not, they're not going to acknowledge that ghost. Can you read Hamlet and take the ghost out of it? God. How do you read Hamlet and take the ghost? If, if the ghost isn't there, the play falls apart. And modern psychologists are not going to deal with that because to deal with him means you're dealing with something supernatural. So here's a man who is hurt to begin with, and then he learns that the man who's now king killed his father, and his father's asking him to avenge his death. Now here's a Catholic, a Christian. He's dealing with a private revel a revelation. What does he do? How can he act? You know, all the, the 19th century take on Hamlet is he was a procrastinator. He doesn't act. Baloney. Hamlet acts a lot. But what does a guy do when he's dealing with a private revelation? You know, the 19th century rationalists couldn't deal with it. They just ignored the ghost. Is everybody understanding? This is how difficult. I mean, can you imagine a more perplexing, confusing kind of problem to deal with? You're asked to avenge your father's death. And the man you have to deal with is the king, the source of authority in the political realm. Is everybody following? Shakespeare's taking to a pitch a Reformation problem. Now here's my question. The play opens with a private revelation. Hamlet talks with his dad and he, his, the ghost says, avenge my death. And he says, remember me, remember me. Christ, remember me, remember me. Um, how, Shakespeare believes, that, remember in the lines in Scripture, um, where Christ talks about um, the difficulty of a wealthy man getting into heaven. Remember, and he says, it's harder for a wealthy man to get into heaven than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Remember the phrase? Do you remember what he said after that? What did he say after that? Connie, I know you know this. What did he say after that? It's impossible for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. All things are possible to God. Yeah. What's impossible for man is not impossible for God. So here's my question. This is a Reformation problem. Hamlet's just come from a Catholic school. Nobody, nobody pays any attention to that. I mean, they just mention the word Wittenberg, but Wittenberg is a Catholic university. He's, just, he's, he's come from a Catholic university. He's dealing with a Reformation problem. Um, and the nature of it is that because it's a private revelation, it completely separates him from the natural world. There's no way he can... How does he find his orientation? What does he do? How does he act on the basis of it? There's no way. That's a tortured condition. What does God do as Shakespeare presents this play if God is always working to be good out of evil? What does God do in this play to help Hamlet? Here's my fundamental question. I don't know that we'll be able to answer it next week. I, we'll see. But when here's, the, here's one of the problems. When the play begins, Hamlet is asked... Um, to commit an act of vengeance. Vengeance was a big thing in the Renaissance. I mean, that was a big part of the 
the pagan world, you all know that, to avenge Achilles, avenging Patroclus' death. And it, it's been a constant in our reading. Orestes, avenging the murder of his father. Right? We've encountered it again and again and again and again. Fulfill the law. An injustice has been done. Answer it. Hamlet's asked to commit an act of vengeance. Avenge my death. God says, vengeance is mine. When Hamlet sets out, he sets out to kill Claudius. As a matter of fact, I'm, I don't want to give this away, but in the first early scenes, he's going to see Claudius at prayer. And he has reason to kill him then. I, we have to go into this because it's complicated. But he doesn't kill him because he says he's at prayer. If I kill him now, I send him to heaven. God. <laughs> if I kill him now, I send him to heaven. He says, that's like hire. It's money and hire. That's a nice way to avenge my dad. This guy kills my father, and I send him to heaven for doing it. Um, Hamlet wants to kill Claudius. He does at the very end. I'm giving the play away. He does at the very end. The question that I will be concerned with is, what's the spirit of Hamlet when he kills Claudius at the end? Is it the same spirit of vengeance with which he sets out his quest in the beginning. A lot happens between the beginning and the end. We have to look at what happens and whether or not God is at work in this world, helping to deal with what is essentially a Protestant problem, but I believe is increasingly become a Catholic one. That's a lot. Does every, let me stop. Is everybody following what, what some of my concerns are here and some of the things I would like you guys to look at? These are things that most modern critics are not going to deal with. You know, they're just not going to, they're not even going to acknowledge the ghost. There's no way to deal with Hamlet if you don't. If you take away the ghost, you take away private revelation and you take away Wittenberg. Shakespeare's <laughs> extraordinary, he didn't, you know, Hamlet lived 8th, 9th century. Wittenberg isn't founded till 1503, I think. Luther's there in 1516 or something. Shakespeare knows that. He's concerned with deeper issues. This is a reformation. It, this play is on the, on the threshold of modernity. It's dealing with a religious problem, a problem of faith, how we look at God and what God is doing in the world, and at a political world. How do faith and reason, where do faith and reason come together? Where does a supernatural world come together with a political world? You know, where, where, where are those two worlds reconciled in a Christian worldview? Th those to me are the deepest issues in Hamlet. So they, they deal directly with our faith, what we're doing, how we see the world. Um, let me stop. That's, I, I think that's, any questions? I, I may have gone over some of this too quickly. So let me stop. I, I, I really would like to hear questions. Karen, I know you've got them. Come on. Was that all too quick? You've got, there's somebody who's got to have a question here. That, that's a lot of, that's a, there's a lot of complex, there's a lot of complexity. There's some really profound reality going on in, in Hamlet. So any questions? I have one. Good. So how do modern scholars deal with the fact that um, in Hamlet, the information that he receives from the ghost was true? So in other words, you can't dismiss the ghost without dismissing the message of the ghost and recognizing that it gave him relevant information that he was compelled to act upon. Right. Yeah, it puts him in his predicament. Honestly, Heather, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, my, my aunt, you know, in um, Francis, St. Francis, we're reading Chesterton's Orthodoxy, which is, I, I think I told you it's the book that brought me into the church. It's an amazing book, but in the opening chapter, um, Chesterton's making the argument that the majority of chairs in the universities are filled with guys who are mad, who are insane. I don't know how to answer that except to say that, that, that I mean, if you, if you think about, or, or we did this with Othello, 
I'm going to send you my Othello paper. Watch Iago work, because the interesting thing about Iago is that he keeps rationalizing what he does again and again and again and again. He keeps using his mind. And we're, watch we're being shown an image of modern man, the way he uses his mind to rationalize things away. That that's such a that's such a dominating quality in our modern world that we use our reason in unhealthy ways and I honestly I can't answer that except to say that it just amazes me because if you take the ghost away you destroy the play there's no way to deal with it and yet they do um, do they just call it because um, I have I remember when I read it in college they would say that it was the ghost was just a it was a projection, projection of, of yeah. right. Already attributed it right. to some type of madness. Right, right. No, exactly. I mean, I mean, and if you think about it, if you don't believe in the supernatural and you believe that all things are explainable by earthly human terms, then the only way to explain that is that it's a projection. That it's his way of projecting anxieties or disturbances or disorders or creating a fictional world. I mean, they would, they would rationalize like that. It would, it would, it, it. And if you if you once you step into that world, that's the way you see it. I mean, everything's logical. It, I mean, honestly, it's perfectly logical. To, if that's your starting point, it all fits. Um, but if the, I mean, it, it just uh, it doesn't make sense of the play. And moreover, if you if you've read enough of Shakespeare, you know that Shakespeare makes a place for the supernatural. Um, and so many of the ghosts appear, appear in in uh, Julius Caesar. Supernatural events occur in a number of plays. Um, he believed that there is a transcendent order and it's affecting our world. And the modern psychologist would say exactly what you said. I mean, that you'd rationalize those things away. Any other questions? That was a lot. Are you all following? I hope that's... To me, it pulls together some of the more important things to keep on your mind when you're reading because Hamlet's put in an awful, a tortured situation. He's, he's got, he's a man of honor. He's a, he takes honor seriously. If his father was killed, or here, here's the first problem. How does he believe the ghost? I mean, this is his problem. He faces it. Should he believe the ghost or not? What does he do to answer that first problem? I don't want an answer tonight. I don't want an answer. You've got to read. What does he do? Because he, as a Christian, he believes it may be a demon tricking him. What does he do? What he does is incredible, and it's, and it's one of the things that makes him so attractive to modern psychologists, what he does. I don't want to give that away. Um, you guys have got to read. Anyway, it's an amazing play. It speaks so directly to religious faith and the problem that it presents with every single one of us in a political world. The disciples, the, the uh, martyrs, Christ himself, he was killed. Um, there are things about Christianity that put Christianity at odds with the world. And this play is dealing with a particularly Protestant form of it. So it's very important. It's, it really does speak to our struggles with our faith. Um, Kay, I don't believe you don't have a question. You're not gonna, you're not gonna pick me up on this. <laughs> David, nudge her. Would you just give her a nudge? <laughs> Connie, Anne. Boy, I must have done something wrong tonight. I must have. Are we talking about his feigned madness? Okay. Yeah. Good question. Anybody want to respond? Why, why would that? Why would that be appropriate, Karen? For if you, for, for those of you who haven't read the play, Hamlet will feign a madness. He will he will act as if he's unsettled and it'll it'll unsettle everything around him, the king, his friends, Ophelia. But he he puts on this play that he's unsettled and 
Is your question, your question is what is he doing or why or Karen? What's is that relating to how he's dealing with the um, with dealing with the supernatural world? Just trying to I don't know. Is that a coping mechanism? Yeah, yeah. Sense of a coping mechanism. Yeah, and how? I mean, if if you had a private revelation. How do you deal with the world in any normal way? I think to pretend madness is a way of protect. I mean, can he turn to Claudius, who's the king? Can he trust Claudius, the king? Who can he trust? Um, Claudius is going to put Polonius on him. He's going to say, find out what's wrong with him. Um, Polonius puts his daughter on him, and Ophelia says she loves him, but she's going to spy. Who can he trust? There's nobody in this world he can... I mean, really, it so isolates him. It's just an awful situation. He's isolated from everybody. Who can he trust? It seems to me one of the best things to do is feign a madness to find out. I mean, to... You know, that something's wrong. So, it's an, it, it's an interesting ploy or... You know, that he, that he, that he, he uses. Um, in some ways, to me, it's so appropriate because he... What does he do? Who can he trust? How can he, he's he, he's he he can't trust anybody, so he has to be on guard and do something to feel people out. Otherwise, how will he know? Um, Feeling the okay. It's a way of questioning, of looking, of exploring. You know, um, Suzanne has been reading um, the um, Tolkien at night. Um, she's been reading to me. It just she, she's wanted me to read it forever, and I've not. And but there's a moment when Frodo meets with Strider um, early on in the story, and Frodo asks Strider a question, and Strider's actually glad that he does because it shows that Frodo doesn't trust him; that he's got to find out. Hamlet's in a that situation, raised to a pitch. He doesn't know. What's the what are the opening? What's the opening line of the play? Don't look. What's the opening line? It's an amazing line. The opening line is, "Who's there? Who's there?" Does does is anybody in the play who he seems to be? Who's there? The whole world is unsettled. This the, the 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 death of the king and the revelation the prior, has unsettled everything. Who's there? Who can Hamlet trust? He's 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 got to. He's in a situation where he can't trust anybody and has to do things to find out what's. So I, I think part of the thing is I, I I it may be a coping mechanism, but I also think it's his way of using his intelligence to feel people out to. To find out who they are by what they do with him, the way they respond to him. It's an amazing play. It really is. An, it's so profound, so profoundly modern. Okay, let me leave it because I've already. I'm twenty minutes past the time I allowed for my. I'm already not keeping to my. <laughs> my time limits. How is this? Is this okay? Get you guys going. Can we do this? You ready to get back? Okay, if you if we do, it means you've got to struggle with issues of faith here. <laughs> it's so good to see you guys. I, I just mean that genuinely. I'm grateful for your prayers. It's so good to see you. Your, your faces, the smiles, and the perplexity sometimes when you're <clears throat> listening to this wild man go on. Um, okay, bless your souls. Keep us in your prayers. We will keep you all in our prayers, okay? Um, I will write you guys middle of the week, and, and at this point, we'll plan to meet next Tuesday. And, and we'll, um, I don't know that we'll do the whole play. I don't want to rush this. Um, but we'll, we'll give an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half, um, something like that, and stop, okay? You guys have a good night. Um, Heather... Um, our prayers are going to go with you and 
and for your friend um, some real trials ahead. So um, you have our prayers, okay? You guys have a good week, okay? Bye. Bye. Thank you so much. Thank yep. you. Have a good one. Thank you. Thanks. Uh.